Layovers, your weekly dose of aviation innovation. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard from the flight deck. This is Paul Pabedimitria, and this is Alex Hunter. We'll be the pilots for this podcast about the news, the startups, and the technology defining the modern air travel experience. Flight time today, an hour and 33 minutes, and we expect an untimely arrival. Coming up on this flight, a bug in the Boeing 787, another bug in the American Airlines iPad cockpit app, more lines of codes in the U.S. skies, an app to ship your luggage via FedEx, the end of Terminal 1 at London Heathrow, the hope for a Malaysian airline renewal, a parking valet robot in Germany, and Four Seasons designed the plane. As we reach our cruising altitude, I'm going to turn off the passenger seatbelt sign for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and let's turn on those noise-canceling headphones. Flight 13 to Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm good, Lucy. What a great airport. Yeah, so Lu- explain what Lucy is, because maybe people will have be confused with that. We are, yeah, we're going to a person. Uh, Lucy is London City Airport, which I can't imagine, if you've been to London, many of you have flown into, but uh, it's three-letter code is LCY, so it is affectionately referred to as Lucy, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, her, I guess, at the <laughs> at the end of the show. But it's a, it's a it's a great little airport, arguably my favorite in London. Yeah, well, I understand. I mean, I, I love my Ethro, and I'll tell a story about it when we'll come to it later because it was a Terminal One this morning. I'm in Luxembourg today, so I'll explain the whole story about the Terminal One. But first, before we start the news of the week. We just wanted to say that we're trying a little bit slightly different format today uh, because we realized that we were starting, our episodes were starting to bubbling up in terms of time. <laughs> we're reaching two hours. So uh, what we're going to try, we're going to not do a topic of the week because we feel that uh, what people are interested in, the audience, is mostly the news of the week. So we're going to concentrate on more news in the week and not do uh, the last bits and we'll do them occasionally. Uh, so please give us feedback if you think it's a good idea. If you really want us to dedicate more time into one topic per week, uh, we'll go back to it. So right now, that's um, that's that's our plan. So the first news of the week, uh, a bug in a 787. Alex, what happened there? This is another wonderful example of media hysteria. I mean, it's not cool, this little bug, but it's also been blown way out of proportion. So... There is a software bug, and it is a bug, that can, in theory, shut down the AC power generators, all four of them, uh, on a 787, irrespective of its point in flight. So it could be flying, and all, all of the electrical power sources would shut down. That doesn't sound good, but it was discovered in laboratory testing, not in flight or on the ground or even in a real airplane. Uh, they were testing these generator control units and if they have been running continuously for 248 days they've been generating power continuously for 248 days they could go into a fail-safe mode and they will not be generating power in a fail-safe mode and if all four of them do it at once it's a problem but this means the plane will have been running continuously 
for 248 days. Now, the smarter among you would have already figured out that this is basically a non-issue because there is no chance in hell that a plane is going to run for 248 days without stopping, even those <laughs> generators. So, yes, it's a bug. And, and a lot of there's been a lot of commentary about this. And the good commentary is it is not a flight safety issue, but it is a disappointing testing issue. This thing should have been caught before the, the plane was ever launched. So anyway, the FAA have launched an airworthiness directive saying, turn it off and on again from time to time. It'll be fine. And until Boeing... Uh, do, turn re, turn do, it off uh, on and off again. It's, it's a little bit what we do with our computer crashes. Like, oh, whatever. Let's just turn it off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they, that's their rec the FAA's recommendation is to, they could have just, just called tech support and they would have yeah, exactly. been able to solve it. So. Turn your modem off and on again and, you know, everything would be sorted out. So, yeah. well, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a... Uh, it's not something, I mean, some of the headlines were really like, oh, you know, all the 787 will just crash from the skies in a single day tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, was, it was pure hyperbole. But uh, an interesting, I, I think it illustrates the, the ongoing challenge of, of the complexity of aircraft systems and the, the things that you never would have thought of to test. Like, I'm sure one day someone will explain where that 248-day number came from and why it's 248 days, but... For now, who knows? You know, isn't isn't that uh, the number that was on Lost? You know, it had to press yeah. the button every <laughs> or something. God, like I hope not. Uh, still talking about uh, codes because that was a problem with the line of code. Uh, the FAA, uh, which regulates the skies in the U.S., uh, has just announced that he's completed uh, uh, the replacement of a 40-year-old main computer system that drives air traffic control in the U.S., <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, this shows many things. First, it shows that, you know, unbeknownst to a lot of people, the airline industry, whether we're talking about booking, whether we're talking about all the software that goes behind airlines, where we're talking, not aircrafts, uh, but all the foundation of the industry is based on very much legacy software. And this is a proof here that this, you know, the air traffic control in the U.S. was driven by a computer that is more than 40 years old. Uh, but, I mean, the good news, I mean, not that it's bad per se, right, Alex? It's not, you know, it hasn't led to many well, issues. Well, that's the thing. There's something rather comforting about that. It's run for 40 years with almost, you know, very few failures. There's something rather reassuring about that. I, I, I love there was this quote I read, I think it was in Skift. The older systems are difficult to access remotely because few of them connect from FAA to external entities, such as through the Internet. So basically what they're doing is that they're making these uh, old servers Internet friendly. I mean, which is the point. I mean, you, you want them to be able to connect them centrally to have all the modern features of softwares and the point is here is not only that they've just released new lines of codes and then created that behemoth of new software, is actually that it will lead to better management of the skies in the U.S. There actually is an expectation that uh, they should actually have more flow, so potentially more aircrafts at the same time in the skies. And that's mm -hmm. good news. That is good, yeah. That will certainly help with this ongoing capacity issue. It would be interesting to... Uh even if we do it offline, get Dan Hamilton's, our, our guest from a few episodes ago, our traffic controller friend, his thoughts on this new system, uh, if he's allowed to talk about it. But yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I wonder if they've um, thought about, I'm sure they have. That's, that was going to be a dumb question. I wonder what the security implications are of uh, making these servers network accessible now. 
when they weren't yeah they yeah that's what we've asked you and me we've asked that question many times about you know obviously it's everything that now relies on network is probably more at risk of hacking etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah. we'll uh it's uh but i mean it's good news i mean they're going ahead I, I wonder how the switch is made because it's not as if like oh just like press one button and like the whole system must go it must yeah. be very hard planning to to be done yeah Talking i'd love about, to know how they do that yes that would be nice one day to have someone from the faa actually talking about about these kind of stuff because these you know most people because they just use uh and i'm gonna be i'm sorry for what i'm gonna say but because oh we use an iphone oh it's as simple as installing an app so let's just press this in the yeah. entire system and the entire traffic control yeah. changes <laughs> talking about that talking about having an app and that crashes that Actually, American Airlines suffered from an iPad app problem, right? Yeah, about on the 29th of April, so just a few days ago, some tweets started to emerge, which were followed up by media interest and then a borderline frenzy that an iPad issue, and I'll describe what that issue was in a moment, had grounded the entire American Airlines 737 fleet. Now, this turned out to be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not too much. And it turns out that American Airlines, like most larger airlines, are in the process of swapping out their unbelievably heavy paper-based in-flight bags with all the manuals and uh, terminal maps and um, departure uh, guys and all that stuff. Yeah, they're going paperless. They're going paperless. They're moving it all to electronic flight bags, basically glorified iPads or literal iPads. Anyway, uh, this happened to be the case where the iPads for this particular fleet, they started crashing and could not be <laughs> rebooted, meaning that the pilots did not have access to critical information for that particular flight. They had their, didn't have their flight plans, any of the um, departure plates or anything like that. And there were a lot of delays. And of course, people are sitting on the ground getting up, upset. It turns out that there was an app built by Jeppesen, who are a, a subsidiary of Boeing and have are decades old and their specialty is charts in flight charts maps all that stuff they have an app that these guys used that that was failing and causing it to cause a problem and it turns out that the cause of the issue was a single duplicate chart for reagan national in dc in the database oh so it couldn't reconcile the duplicate charts and if they if the pilot had favorited national like, you know, you they bookmarked it, the yeah. app became unresponsive. So all they had to do, and this is so funny, all they had to do was uninstall and reinstall the app. <laughs> and so really, now the FAA is basically telling you to, like like we said before, every 248 days, just reinstall the app. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so this is like hilarious like that we, you know, there's they're having an app issue. Now, American Airlines were very swift to say, this was not an issue with the iPad themselves. It was an issue with an app. I don't. I mean, I don't know why they felt necessary to emphasize that point, but it was interesting. So there maybe, is maybe they want they, maybe they, they want people to have confidence that when they see pilots and crew with an iPad, that it's it's reliable. Maybe it's nothing to do with Apple yeah. here. It's to say, oh, don't worry, it's not the entire thing that is broken. It's just one app, and we'll figure it out. So yeah, that's. Pretty pretty uh, funny now that you know everybody's. They're pushing a, a database update in four days, so May eighth, and I guess in the meantime they just give them the PDF files. Yeah, which I is mean, so funny, isn't it? 
Yeah, it, interestingly, I mean, in one of the articles I read about this, it was, uh, but I didn't know about the, you know, why it happened. But they say that uh, American Airlines is saving, I mean, expecting to save uh, more than a million U.S. dollars a year just in fuel because of the lightness of having, uh, you know, not all the paper. So actually, it makes sense. I it mean, does make I, I sense. say that in order to kind of, because some people have read some comments online saying, oh, we should go back to paper. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, there's a reason also why we move forward. Not that even even if uh, Alex and I are both, I mean, we like, like our technology, we're not by definition a pure, like a, you know, worshiper of technology, but here it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Um, just a quick, uh, going now to aircraft. Uh, I'm going to take the A380 a few times this month, and uh, I just wanted to quickly say happy birthday to the A380 because now a year, uh, ten years and a week ago, it was the first uh, ever a flight, a commercial flight for, from the A380. Can you believe so it's I, been ten years? No, I can't actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my first flight was maybe like five, six years ago, or something like that. Of course, on Emirates, uh, I something like that. It's uh, it's still something when I see it. You know, this morning I was at Heathrow. There were a few Qantas Emirates, and I think there was another. Well, yeah, the British Air was one. It's still, you know, it's not the most magnificent plane. We repeat that a lot, but it's still impressive. Honestly, it's a nice, uh, and you know, the, the, its future is still uncertain. We've we've, t- we've said many times that Emirates wants a re-engine. That there haven't been basically any orders since 2013. And uh, that's only maybe like 320 or 315. I don't remember the n- number of, of those were sold overall. So it's not a huge, I mean, chances are you've never seen one if, you don't, if you're not a frequent flyer. So um, here's to hoping that it will continue because still it's a, it's a pretty good jet. Yeah, and from a passenger experience point of view, it's a great airplane. It's quiet and comfortable and spacious and, and well lit. I like yeah, it. Yeah, no, I like it. It's not like you say. It's not an attractive airplane in the classical sense, but yeah, it's a comfortable yeah. airplane. Yeah, it's comfortable. And talking about comfort, <laughs> that the other one, the seven four seven eight dash eight, which is even less successful here, but that both Alex and I love because we love our seven four seven. Talking about comfort, there's uh, apparently a version, a fully private version that uh, that is being floated around, right? Oh uh, yeah, this is. I found this on. The most unusual source on the Daily Mirror, which is a tabloid newspaper oh. here in the UK, they have this, uh, what they claim is an exclusive from a couple of weeks ago, that the first private 747-800, the interior is finished. Now, I am pretty confident I saw this being built when I went to the Boeing factory in Seattle and it was on the line. Oh, I think you mentioned it. I remember, yeah. But now it's taken it's 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 done the interior is done i thought wow i was in seattle several years ago this article claims that the interior refurbishment took three years to do what three years so the the plane itself cost 230 million dollars and the interior cost another pardon me 230 million pounds with the interior upgrades costing another 160 million pounds unbelievable they've released no details uh, or pictures of the interior but it is the very first one and i think that once it's been delivered to the customer again they've not said who it is we will see uh some pretty spectacular photos because in terms of square footage that plane could be a palace 
It's actually, there's not that many customers can afford that. No, so. exactly. <laughs> I but, mean, we had a, we made an episode where we mentioned a few of these uh, private, private 747s in disguise and probably... Uh, one of the names we already evoked back then, it will be the name of someone who gets it. Or uh, there's not that many people will not only have the means, but also have the will and the capacity of having like, a, you know, you have to park it somewhere, right? It's not only having it. Yeah, and fuel it. <laughs> and fuel it and, and staff it. And, you know, so it's, um, uh, it could be a government, by the way, because most people, when they say uh, private, it doesn't mean by definition that it's owned by a single person. It could be also by a, uh, a government, which could be a royal, royalty, for instance. I mean, where, of course, the lines are very blurry with when it's royalty, what is government, it wasn't private, but well, we never know. Ho let's hope it's not too tacky. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be uh, eagerly awaiting my invitation to fly on it. Oh yeah, oh yeah, God damn it! I've, have you ever seen one of those from the inside? I, mean, I have. I've seen. I've I've been on a uh, on a Boeing business jet, not flying, but on it on the ground, and it was wow. uh, incredible. And that's just a seven thirty seven. This is wow. you know orders of magnitude I've, larger. So I've never seen. I've seen Gulf Streams. You know, you know the, the business jets, the, the smaller ones, but never. These size of, of, of aircraft. I was, I think it's eBay. So, I saw them, so like you, I went on the ground and so how, how it was inside, and some were quite luxurious. But I, I cannot fathom the size of a 747 no, being it's completely just, privatized. It's beyond right? belief. <laughs> um, talking about, oh yeah, still talking about Boeing, I read an interesting piece of news about the 777. So, United is, will be using 777s, I think 200s, on US routes. How, I mean, for a long time, there were at some point some 747s for U.S. routes, some domestic routes for yeah. the U.S. The fact that they are, what do you think about the fact that they are releasing 77, which is a pretty big plane, on U.S. routes? This is not something that I would have, would have expected. There was, yeah, you're right. There was a long period where 747s were used on, I mean, People Express certainly used them, Braniff used them on domestic routes, and then United and American, not pardon me, not American, uh, but certainly United, even in recently have used them. Um, but this, them using them, the 777 is a natural, to me, a natural progression from the 767. And also... Some of those triple seven two hundreds are getting old. Like I sent you a message yeah, offline. I for some reason, when, every morning I always pull up one of those great plane finder apps. In fact, the app Plane Finder, just to see what's flying around. And I caught the very first triple seven commercially available delivered triple seven landing at Heathrow, and it was twenty one years old. Wow! United Airlines seven seven seven. Uniform Alpha landing at Heathrow, and I was like, 21 years old, holy cow!" So some of those are kind of in their retirement phase. So they might—it seems like a good stopgap measure while they wait for additional capacity. Ah, okay, that's uh, because I—I I, I thought, I mean, in the U.S. domestically, you don't have that many wide-body jets. You no, you're right. Sadly, yeah. So I was, uh, I mean, the, the industry for a while seemed to be, at least in the U.S., uh, seemed to have been going to like smaller aircraft, more efficient, point-to-point, -point, uh, not having these huge uh, hub networks. Yeah, focusing like very... on frequency over capacity. Exactly. Whereas by putting 777s, it's going a little bit against, uh, I mean, they're also uh, kind of efficient because they have two engines and not four like yeah. a 747, but you're still going into more, it's, a, you know, there's 
two ales. I mean, it's these kind of planes that, I mean, I'm sure they're going to put them on very heavy routes, uh, but still, it. do you think it it, it, it it is only because it's a stopgap before basically either selling them to someone else or scratching them, or do you think it's actually a, a sign of a potential change of strategy? I think... I think it could legitimately be both. Uh, I remember for a long time, American, probably still to this day, would use 767s on transcon routes, mm -hmm. Correct. Uh, yeah. which makes a lot, of, which to me, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then you kind of augment that with with uh, 757s and, and in their case, Mad Dogs. But I think it could be both, right? I think it could be a capacity issue as you retire them from long haul routes in favor of more efficient uh, newer versions of the triple seven, the seven eight seven, things like that. A three fifty and is it American that orders A three fifty. Either one, I think one of them has. But anyway, yeah, I think I think it is a natural fleet progression for them, and a, yeah, okay. and a and a long awaited one too. Yeah, well, I don't fly United, but uh, it's true that most of my the long routes I've done in the U.S., which is usually coast to coast, I've been in such old planes that. I, I'm, I would be actually even looking forward to flying to a 777 in the U.S. Yeah, even if it is 21 years old. <laughs> even if it is 21 years old to be. I mean, compared to some of the old 767s, not even talking about the other ones, it's still better. But the reason I, I've asked you this question is that there was other two other bits of news about lounges, again in the U.S. So both AA, American Airlines, which we just men uh, mentioned before, and United they both announced a huge upgrade, the plans to upgrade their lounges in the U.S. So lounges in the U.S. for those who have never traveled or maybe are not lucky enough to be uh, have access to lounges. When you go to lounges in the U.S., at least that's my perspective, they're very bland and bleak and nothing special, right? It's just, it's nice because it's a recluse area, so you have maybe less, you know, crowd, etc. But compared to lounges all around the world, and I'm not even talking about lounges, of course, in the Middle East or in Asia, or some of them are very fancy. The ones in the U.S. are very, you know, like the airports. They are square, and you have seats, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, some of them, so I've, I've seen some good improvements, especially, again, for U.S. airlines. Uh, the ones that are Ethereum are, pr are pretty good, for instance. But uh, American Airlines is actually going to invest $2 billion dollars in improving all the entire customer experience, and most of it will be apparently, from what I've read, to improving the lounge experience. It's like, the reason I say that is like, we've been talking about this saga, that we'll come to a minute, of course, because we cannot escape it, uh, about the saga between the US airlines and the Middle Eastern ones. And your point was a lot like, yeah, guys, compete. You know, do not only say, oh, they are bad. They're, these guys are making up for competition, we compete. This is a sign that there are, at least trying to compete because upgrading for two billion is a big, pretty big program. Yeah, absolutely, and good for them. I mean, that's a very, very positive step in the right direction. And you're spot on about lounges. And I think, irrespective of airline, it's it's not about the airline's willingness to improve the product. It just seems to be a thing with airport lounges in the U.S. I've been to the Virgin Lounge in gosh, six or seven U.S. cities, and as creative as uh, Virgin are in their, in their physical spaces, they're all pretty bad, like windowless 
boxes stuck yeah, in the bowels yeah, that's of usually, Newark Airport. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I'm very happy because I went to the, uh, one, the Admirals Lounge. So that's the AA Lounge. I went to a few because I don't fly American, but I went to the one in uh, in Sky Harbor, so in Phoenix, which was the title of our show a few episodes ago. And they have, this is the first that they will actually revamp. And it was exactly what you said. It was like this kind of windowless experience. Most of the lounge I've, I've been to were the Delta ones. And some of them are like, also you're like, they all look like the same. And sadly, they all look sh- like, I was about to say shit. I'm sorry, <laughs> Delta. But that's, uh, it's very, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. It doesn't have to pay again, the level of some of the Middle Eastern airlines, nor the Asian, some of the Asian airlines, it's just to have some kind of, you know, a bit more light, a bit, uh, you know, the, uh, the the type of fabric you put on the sofas and stuff. It doesn't need to be fancy and over the top to be a good lounge. Yep. And uh, so I'm very much looking forward. And again, uh, for you guys, for those of you guys who travel through Heathrow, I think the one, the United one, is a pretty, pretty good lounge actually on, inter, on international comparison. So you should check it out if you have uh, the chance. I think we uh, should definitely do a segment on on <clears throat> lounges in general and whether those pay for lounges are worth it and some of those lounge yeah, access yeah. cards. I would think it would be an interesting topic to explore. Yeah, and coming back to what I said at the very beginning of the show uh, for the audience, we're not abandoning making topics. We're just going to spread them out uh, some weeks and weeks. And this is one that we already said we want to do it uh, because it's. I think it's really – I don't know anything about pay-for uh, pay lounges. And I, th- I remember I asked you, Alex, what did you think about it? I think it was a program a few weeks ago. So, yeah, I would also, from my own interest, I would love to research that and see how good this is. Uh, still in the U.S., uh, skip lag. So – Tell us the story about Skiplag for those who don't remember. Skiplag, yeah, I think we've talked about them in the past, but Skiplag is a little hobby site developed by a student in the U.S. that basically allows you to find hidden city ticket pairs. Now, hidden city ticket pairs is essentially a technique where you buy a ticket between two cities with a connection, and the connecting city is where you actually want to go. So let's say you want to fly from San Francisco uh, to New York, but you find a ticket that's San Francisco to Boston with a stopover in New York that's much cheaper. You buy that fare even though you don't want to go to Boston, uh, and when you land in New York on the stopover, you just get off the plane and you save yourself a lot of money. Now, you can uh, the smarter of you, We'll have figured out that this is great, except you can't do round trips, which is true. Uh, and also, and this is what United Airlines and Orbitz got a little bit pissed off about, is it, in essence, not even in essence, technically, is violation of the of your fare rules. So they sued this kid, and he is a kid. But... Yeah, but they sued, sorry, they sued the kid because this is something that you could do on your own, by using, I mean, we make ITA matrix and other tools, you can actually find these type of routes and do that on your own. What it did, it was just did a small website that basically kind of made that experience of finding these type of fares a bit easier, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a good site, it works well. And he, when the legal problems first started, he got a lot of support from frequent flyers, from a lot of like Flyer Talk, not everybody on Flyer Talk is a fan, but a lot of them were Reddit, people like that really got behind it. Um, so United Airlines sued him and it was just tossed out of court on a technicality, which is interesting. The judge ruled that 
because the United Airlines is based in Chicago. They brought the case to Chicago or the Illinois um, district. And the, the judge said, this is not a appropriate place for this lawsuit to take place because neither the proprietor nor the website itself have any contacts, any presence, any relation to this state. So it's not an appropriate place to have this. And we are, I'm throwing it out of court. What United have said is, and I quote, the dismissal does not preclude the plaintiff from refiling and litigating its claim in a proper form. Actually, that's what the judge said. And United Airlines have said, basically, they're not sure if they're going to refile. I don't think that they will. Yeah. Oh, why? Because you think it was bad publicity for them? I think it was bad publicity. I can't imagine it's taking a lot off of their bottom line. I don't imagine that this guy's going to have the wherewithal or the resources to develop this any further. They may change the way that they um, file these types of affairs to cut him off technologically. New York apparently is the only place that makes sense for them to do it, but he's raised nearly $80,000 in a legal defense fund. So if he wants to, to take this to the field, he can. So it'll be very interesting to see. How was he making any money out of this site or was he just, I'm not sure. I, that's a very good question. I don't actually know. I don't think, I, for what I remember, I thought it was just kind of not a hobby, but let's say something that wasn't meant to be a business. But I don't know, because of course that would change the, just you mentioned Flyer. Some people on Flyer Talk were, were not in favor, obviously, because they don't want a little secrets being, you know, available for the wider public. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, th I think it's, he's done the traveling world a credit by exposing, it's not intentional it's just the intricacies and weirdness of of dated airline pricing techniques so hopefully yeah, something did, will yeah. change from this but the the last line of this article on bloomberg made me laugh it said international media attention to the lawsuit has helped boost the site's traffic enormously and the lawyer representing the site said god bless united airlines at least from a business perspective yeah <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's sometimes these type of pricing techniques are be a bit uh, miss. I mean, I don't understand them all the time, right? Some of them Me are legacy. I don't some of them probably does. make sense because of capacity things. You know, some cities are more. But you know, for instance, I was I'm going to the U.S. shortly, and and I was trying to find a return fare on a so a single uh, not a return so it's a one way from the U.S. to Europe. They are, they're just punishing me because I haven't done the return flight. And I'm like, what? The, you know, there are so yeah. many airlines in Asia or in the Middle East. I can just buy whichever leg I want and it'll just, I'll just pay for it. And that's it. They don't like punish you that you, oh, you have to do the return. Otherwise, well, I'll just increase the price by that. It's these are the type of, uh, I, I know a lot of people, you know, the, the one way fares are not something that's widely used. Most people use return. But I think that these are the part, the things that, in terms of customer experience, you know, airlines should start looking into into like you know some people just need yeah they flexibility yeah and I I think that the way that it's the same with the Saturday night stay rule it's aimed at business travelers who aren't going to stay for a weekend and it jacks up the price accordingly it's it's annoying and very very frustrating gosh I wish we had that flexibility yeah exactly I th oh we'll get there. Uh, talking about flexibility, uh, Malaysian Airlines have been having a very bad, I think we said that many times, a very bad year, year and a half now. They just have a new CEO and uh, new you know, plans have been announced. 
they have had a terrible 18 months. Uh, I do feel very sorry for them. And they have a new CEO, as you said, who only started officially a couple of days ago, Christoph Muller, who was largely credited with turning Aer Lingus around to mm-hmm. the point where IAG now want to buy it. That story is still pending, by the way. So there, on his first day officially on board, there was a rumor or a sort of soft announcement that Malaysia Airlines was doing a massive fleet restructuring. Liam uh, and Associates, a very well-respected aviation blog, reported that they are selling or leasing all of their A380s, all of their freighters, effectively shutting down mass cargo, four triple sevens, and basically they will not fly to Europe anymore and completely wow. restructure the way that the airline is operated. Wow, that's I mean it's I mean sadly they had no no maybe probably no choice and they have to go very strict measures because we know that between obviously the loss of two aircrafts, one we didn't we still don't know where it is, and the then the image, you know, because also after the events there were probably also some mishandling of some of the situation by both the authorities, it's not Malaysian's fault, but also a bit bad Malaysian management. So the image was really bad. And some people, you know, then there's like, you know, people were afraid to take them. I knew, I know it's silly, but it happens when you have such a bad streak. Mm-hmm. And so they had to, they just had to. It And it was a legacy airline in a way. So they were probably not like going from a fantastic picture to suddenly a very dire one they no and from what i understand and this is anecdotal the reputation of malaysia airlines in southeast asia remains pretty strong despite the tragedies that they've endured so i think restructuring at least in the short term to focus on that market makes a lot of sense get rid of some of those expensive airplanes while they try and fix this. I also read somewhere, and I'll have to dig up the source to post in the show notes, that they have created a new legal entity. So a lot of the uh, liabilities from the previous entity will be left behind. Yeah, which is usually the case when you want to move on. And and that there is a strong possibility that they will ditch the MH code. But will they rebrand, though? Because we, we had a story a few episodes ago. I can't remember now. I'll have to look it up. But we said that there were rumors about them potentially rebranding the, the the company. Do you think because you just said ditched? I didn't know about that. So you said ditched the image code. Do you think that also means maybe changing the name of the company? Quite possibly. But like I said, I think it has still has a strong brand presence in in Southeast Asia and especially domestically in Malaysia. So it's hard to say. But they're going to have to do something to move yeah. away from such a, a tragic period. It will also be interesting to see what happens with uh, the six uh, A380s that they have because uh, that will, that is also proof we just mentioned uh, the A380 is having its 10th anniversary. Yeah. Uh, it would be interesting to know what, what, uh, what happens with the six uh, A380s that, are, that Malaysian has and will, as part of the restructure plan, uh, ditch because uh, there were some rumors at one point that Turkish was would have been interested in getting some of them to test if it, the, the A380 would be a fit for their system, their hub system, which is very close to what the Middle Eastern airlines are doing. Uh, Emirates heavily relies on A380s. So it's interesting because we just said that the, air, the, the A380 is 10 years old now, and we have a, 
and it's we don't know yet because they don't have that many orders what's the secondary market what happens to these aircrafts once a company doesn't want them anymore so yeah we'll see if do you think anyone would pick them up well those skymark a380s are still sitting oh, yeah. there aren't they and those are done frames but this is as you say this is a secondary market so these are planes that will be substantially discounted from the kind of off the line price as it were so you're right it's going to be a really interesting test to see what happens to these planes yeah exactly yeah it would be uh i i think in the meantime because we mentioned that rumor about turkish being interested i think in the meantime then it was changed turkish said i think officially that they were not maybe they are still thinking about it we'll we'll see it's, it's true that turkish is since they're going into that same direction as all the three middle eastern airlines would be the most likely candidate but maybe Maybe they're just bringing a game of like, oh, we want to, you know, them as low price as possible. So yeah. <laughs> and I, w- I, don't, I don't know if those Malaysian A380s were leased. So I can't imagine Airbus is going to be hugely enthusiastic about being cut out of that deal if they're just going to buy them straight from Malaysia. Yeah. So know. who Maybe knows? Maybe it was wet I don't know. Yeah, it would be interesting to, to see what happens. But anyway, good for Malaysia. I mean, good. It's, it's a sad situation, but probably it's good to start afresh. Moving on, yeah. And if uh, the, the, the CEO was being, uh, he was able to turn in our Aer Lingus, and a lot of people are thinking that he can be the person of the situation to turn these these around. So we'll see. I hope so. We'll see. I hope so as well. Talking about turning uh, legacy airlines around, uh, another legacy airline in Europe, TAP. So TAP, it's a Portu- Portuguese airline. I've, I've taken them once in a long, long time ago. Have you ever flown them? Or? No, I haven't. So this is one of the airlines that you know we don't talk a lot. I've I've seen them obviously very, uh, very often in in the, on the runways, but they just have a very bad streak because they're going. Uh, there's a huge strike happening. I think it's happening right now. There's uh, more than three thousand flights are being cancelled, which basically will cut off more than three hundred thousand passengers. We won't have. Uh, fl- uh, an aircraft to fly with. And it's a pi- uh, it's a pilot strike, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's uh, it, it. I mean, we I, we don't want to report about every single strike that happens in the airline industry. It's not the case, but here the reason I mention it is that I it's a sign of the struggle that all these legacy airlines have. We mm-hmm. mentioned many times Lufthansa and its pilot strikes in in Germany, but even in in Portugal. And I don't know about how cost-effective or non-cost-effective TAP is, but it shows that probably they're going through the same struggle where probably the airline trying to get uh, our pilots who agree to pay cuts and they don't want to, and uh, basically, and it's losing money. I think uh, the airline lost um, almost 100 million uh, euros uh, last year. Yeah, that's, ouch. And it's a 10-day strike, right? Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's a very long days. strike. Jeez. Actually, the court there, there's a court that mandated that uh, pilots have to provide thirty flights a day. Uh, so, but still, thirty flights a day com- compared to what probably the you they, they have on a normal day probably ouch. doesn't you know yeah ouch. But again, it's that struggle that is part of all this restructuring we're seeing, and it's uh, we've been having also strikes in in France as well with Air France. It's it's not an easy no. airline industry is not an easy one to be in. No, no, and this just makes it worse. And it's only, I think we're going to see a lot more of this in 2015 in Europe. Yeah, I I think so too. Sadly, so I think so too. And uh, but uh, we'll we'll see. I mean, the U- 
in some countries unions are stronger than others so we'll, we'll see what happens with that but i i have the feeling that we'll we'll have other cases like this which for us living in europe uh, me and alex in, for instance is not always easy because you'll you know you plan your routes have a very tight schedule in the next three weeks and you know if one airline goes on strike yeah I'm just the screwed. knock-on effect is going to be yeah not good yeah, yeah considering your itinerary for the next month <laughs> it's yeah uh, going back to some more happy news, um, do you know what the Freddie Awards are? Yes, uh, the Freddie Awards are. I'm so glad that these exist. The Freddie Awards. Do you want to explain what they are? No, go ahead because uh, yeah, go ahead, and I'll, then I'll ask you a question about them. So the the Freddie Awards are named after Sir Freddie Laker, who was a pioneer in affordable international travel, and the reason why Virgin Atlantic exists. He was a huge inspiration to uh, Richard Branson. In fact, the first or second Virgin Atlantic plane was named after Sir Freddie. He had a plane called, uh, an airline, pardon me, called Laker Airways that uh, was bullied out of the market, frankly, by British Airways. And I think was, again, an inspiration to Richard Branson to not give in to some skullduggery, shall we say, from BA against Virgin in the 80s. And they've named the, this set of awards uh, after him, which I think is a wonderful tribute to a legacy of a guy that really democratized air travel for Brits in the, in the, in the 70s and 80s. He was a hugely influential man. So now they basically, I mean, I, you must, anyone who is uh, part of a, some frequent flyer system or basically has your if your email is on a, on a database from an airline you probably got an email saying yeah you can vote yeah <laughs> you can vote and vote for us so that my question is i uh, will come to one after because it's almost not the it was not the point of my question is do you think that basically it becomes a popularity contest and like oh i'm gonna say i'm gonna send lots and lots and lots of emails and you know probably that's why i'm gonna win i'm a bit sorry i'm i'm, I'm being skeptical because i like the idea of the word I'm not sure about, you know, what is the reality behind who wins. If it's more because the, per, the more marketing push and actual quality of uh, the, a program. You know, as as much as I love Sir, Sir Freddie, um, having looked at the past winners of this award, I worry that it is a little bit of a marketing push. American Airlines feature heavily in the past award winners. Best customer yeah. service, American Airlines, really? I don't know. But to be honest with you, it is, it's based on loyalty programs. It's a heavy push towards yes. loyalty programs. Yes. So, yes. so it's that audience. And if you're a top-tier American Airlines flyer, you're treated like gold. You, you, you yeah, probably get to fly the airplane if you wanted to. So <laughs> I can see how they, you know, they would get genuine and, and loyal and, and legitimate interest. But I do wonder if it is a bit of a... Uh, a marketing thing as you say yeah uh, because the reason i'm saying that is because the winner so the, the winners there's not a global winner there's a global yeah, there's re, three yeah, winners regional. one in the north america american airlines it was one in europe klm air france and one in the middle east asia i think it's the entire uh, who won I, I, I forgot actually i don't have i don't have it in front of me but the reason I'm saying that is me being part of many flying, frequent flyer program. Uh, I got honestly the number of emails I got about hey let's vote. The most were from KLM Air France, and those are the ones who won. I mean, I got maybe one single email from uh, like an incentive to vote from Lufthansa, for instance. And they yeah, and so they won 
every single category except one. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't know. I, I, I'm really I, and I don't want to diss the, the awards here. It was just to to you know how really relevant they are. Like and uh, you make a very good point. If you're part of, if you're a frequent flyer and you have some kind of status, even if it's not a top tier, even if it's a good status, your experience as a passenger already is different. Uh, so, but I mean, it's nice to see. I mean, I, I don't fly American Airlines, so I cannot judge if they're really best for customer service and if they really have this fantastic program for miles. Maybe they do. Maybe they do. I don't know. I I, uh, I have no exposure to them other than having a you know a few thousand miles with BA who are a partner. But I've never I haven't flown on American Airlines in decades, so I I couldn't tell you what they're. Yeah, and Virgin is conspicuously absent from this. Yeah, but Virgin, <laughs> Virgin are too small to feature in things yeah, like this. To be exactly to be entirely honest, I mean, but with this you. is you know this is where you can think: is it because you know when you're an alliance or when you're a bigger airline, you have the push to? It's not. I don't know because they're anyway. It's. I mean, these are the kind of awards that are always nice uh, to to hear about because they still represent some kind of reality, yeah. but. Which reality is the, the question mark? Uh, going back to a sad, uh, not back, but going to a sad reality, uh, there was this big earthquake that happened. Awful, in yeah. Yeah, it's uh, actually, uh, I have a few friends, I have one that lives there, and uh, I mean, I know he's okay and everything, he's helping out. Uh, so, first, uh, uh, he told me that if, you know, he's going to set up a program. Uh, because a lot of people offer, are offering help, so you can go through the usual channels, you know, the Red Cross and other channels. Uh, I haven't heard of airlines doing any specific thing, at least in Europe and the U.S. for them. Maybe they exist, and uh, please, if anyone knows about them, just send us a tweet or an email about them. Uh, so he, he, he told me that it will be a specific program for people that are more you know, into the tech industry because himself himself is, so maybe uh, it would be interesting for you. The reason we mention it here, uh, here in a program, besides uh, people may be able to, to help, is that there have been some nice stuff happening in the airline industry, very close to actually the events. Uh, there's uh, some airlines like um, Indigo and SpiceJet. There are two uh, low-cost airlines that uh, have actually that usually are you know low-cost airlines are very close to their money and say that because you know they already operate a very thin, razor-thin margins. Yeah. So they're going to do a lot. But they've reduced the price of the tickets between Kathmandu and Delhi to significantly. Like it really becomes extremely cheap. And they, uh, they actually fly, fly the relief material for free. I think it's, you know, it's nice, nice to hear stories like that. It is nice. nice. And I, I mean, beyond the, the broader scale of this tragedy, it is awful. My family has a long history with Nepal. It's been heartening to see the response from just about every country in the world but also what's been interesting is how they've had to deal with it from an infrastructure perspective particularly around aviation they had to close the airport for quite a long time to check the runway and now they have said that they can't accept airplanes over 187 tons because they don't think that the runway integrity is there to to safe to safely allow them so hopefully that will change in the next day or two but uh, that just further exacerbates a really tough problem for relief and, and aid and things like that. Well, well, uh, so I'll put some links. Uh, and again, if anyone has knows of any good program, I mean, it could be any, I'll put some, you know, the usual ones, but if, if 
anyone knows about an initiative from the airline industry since the podcast about the airline industry please do not hesitate to let us know and we'll be happy to um, uh, broadcast those as well uh, going back to the US once more and last time for this uh, part of the news uh, this saga is and I'll let you talk in a few minutes about the, the continuum of this saga between the Middle Eastern Airlines and the US Airlines but just before you, you go to your bit of news there was an article that I read very recently that was provided to me by Gen Kanai again our friend who lives in, in Tokyo and very interesting uh, because it shows that since the Open Skies Agreement between uh, the U.S. and China, uh, you know, for a long time, and that's a bit, the reason I'm saying that is it mirrors a bit the story with the Middle East. Mm. When, you know, when the industry uh, signed Open Skies, it's like, oh, we want access to your market, not thinking that the opposite actually will at some point buy them in the ass, right. to use that term. And basically, this is what happens right now with the Middle Eastern Airlines. Or suddenly, they're overpowering uh, 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 American Airlines, and here that article, I'll put the link, says that he, the same has just happened with China. I mean, Chinese airlines are not in the category of you know the fancy Middle Eastern airlines, but in terms of the number of flights between the U.S. and 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 China, now Chinese airlines are actually the majority, and they have a lot of money, and they have also, of course, a lot of money. But that shows that you know it's competition, as you said, and that's some it probably. They will at some point have to reflect uh, uh, about, you know, will they one day say, oh, we want to renegotiate open skies with China? Yeah, I don't know, but it seems very likely. And I think that the, the Pacific is going to be the next uh, market that gets really um, a lot more capacity because of this, which is a, which is a good thing. And it'll be interesting to see how the, the, the legacy airlines and by that, I mean, the ones that have been serving that route for decades react. Yes. It's it's uh, it's fascinating, but I mean we'll we'll keep following this. But I, I believe this is really close to the story of the Middle East. And talking about which, there's a a story that you found uh, recently, just this morning. This actually. morning, this was announced. Yeah, that that is actually proving the point you were saying. I think last week, two weeks ago. Go ahead. About yeah. So one of the observations that that we saw come up in the discussions that ever. The ongoing discussions about, about this battle between the Middle Eastern three and the U.S. carriers is that the U Middle Eastern carriers are throwing additional capacity at U.S. destinations, adding new U.S. destinations, I think, as part of a tactic in this ongoing battle, but also because that window might close pretty soon if any of the U.S. carriers get their way and there's a temporary or permanent freeze put on new Gulf Airlines service to the U.S. So on the back of that, yesterday, Qatar Airways said it is significantly expanding its service to the U.S. and adding direct flights to L.A., Boston, a second daily flight to Atlanta, uh, to New York, and introducing service to Atlanta, which is such a smack in the face to Delta that it's, <laughs> it's clearly calculated. So they're, they're throwing... State-of-the-art, brand-new airplanes, A350s and 777s with their vastly superior interior product right into the front door of some of the airlines who are battling them in the first place. So this will go on and on yeah, and on. Yeah, I think it will go on. And, uh, like you said uh, last episode, which, by the way, was not exactly last week. Forgive us uh, for not doing an episode last week. Um 
you said that probably also the maybe putting a lot of routes now before the hammer comes down. So there's like, okay, let's let's deal a capacity with the capacity now because maybe at some point we'll be blocked. So at least we'll have the current routes there. Yeah. So maybe that's also part of it. But Qatar is not is known as well to be a bit pushy sometimes. So we'll see. It's uh, and I say pushy not in a bad way, but uh, it's it's a it's a fun story at least from an outsider point of view. Yeah. Like you and me, it's fun to see. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be uh, uh, in planning at one of the U.S. airlines right now, trying to see where all of these uh, new competitors are going to be popping up. And, and I'm sure the U.S. airports are very happy. Yeah. The They're like, wow, it's come new on, revenue, more, new more yeah. customers, more. Absolutely. Uh, that's the whole point of the debate. Anyway, uh, you see, we cannot escape that story. Every single week, there's, an, <laughs> there's something about it. It's like a soap opera. That. It's wonderful. <laughs> Go, going to the innovation bit of the news, so the Apple Watch was released. Uh, we had D, uh, Dean Johnson on the last episode. We talked a bit about the Apple Watch. It was just a day before it got released. So there's a few reviews out there. There's I haven't found yet reviews specifically about apps, air, uh, air travel apps. No. Um, they're not really there yet. Uh, the reviews are a bit uh, on and off about the watch itself. Some people say that it's uh, a bit of a letdown. Maybe the expectations were too high. Some other people say that actually, and this is after a few days of use, they say that it's actually a, a great experience because uh, they say you have to set your expectations and not thinking that this will be a phone uh, because most people still you know, would have the language of a phone translated to a watch. Mm. It's more something that you glance at, something you do very quick actions with. And thus, they say that at least the, the stock applications are already, for some of them, very good for that. Uh, many people criticize apps, and again, not airline apps. I haven't found anything specific about them. apps because of, obviously they were designed without the watch yet. So most of them were like just, yeah, you know, they were rushed to, put, to be there on April 24th, but they're not there, you know, in terms of what it is, um, what the watch is good at. So they will iterate. Have you, uh, so the important yeah. question is, have you ordered one? No, still not. No, and me either. not. So I, for the first time, I was uh, with a friend of mine, Brian Solis, the other night in London, and we had dinner. He had one ah. on his wrist. So I took it from his wrist, and I put it on. And the first thing that, 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 that I saw was, of course, he had a Mickey Mouse-like you know, thing. <laughs> so I was like, uh, he plays on that. He says, everybody goes for fancy stuff, so I want to go for Mickey Mouse. But... For me, for my wrist, it was small, and that was a big model. That was, you know, there's two sizes. Oh, that interesting. Was the larger model, and I still found it small. I played a bit with it. It's hard because, again, the notifications were not done to me, so it's a bit, you know. So will I buy one? I'm still not convinced. I'm, you know, I'm a geek in some way, so I'll probably end up buying one, but maybe I'll wait for version two. Maybe I'll wait for more friends having it and showing me that it can do something that actually helps me. Will you buy one? Maybe in a three or four generations time or two yeah, or three. I don't, I don't know. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. It's uh, the one though, uh, there's a trip. It has just released uh, uh, an app. Uh, so again, I haven't seen it. I've seen only uh, the fact that trip it has released an app, but I, I'm being now currently on a trip. So here I'm in Luxembourg from a hotel room and I'm, I'm using trip it to put everything. So I have my flights in there. I have my hotel reservations. So I've, Honestly, this is a use case. I would say maybe the watch could be useful because yeah. I get like the notification, the gate change stuff. Everything is centralized, and I get that. So this is a use case that if the, the app TripIt app is is well done, which again I, I cannot say, but that would be something 
that would be interesting to me. Again, not probably justify the buying and watch just for right, shipping. Right. But I'm saying if, if more and more apps, you know, are like that in terms of, you know, being very useful at specific times and more and more then at some point it will make me tip and say, okay, it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I trip it is such a great app on the phone. I hope that they do the watch app justice or, or the rest of the app justice with their watch iteration. The, the, the story though that was fun, I'm sure you read it as well, it was Qantas. So Qantas has released an, a, a, an Apple Watch app. Apple Watch app. I still haven't. It's not <laughs> easy to say. An Apple Watch app, and uh, which I get no reviews, but the very funny bit that makes you think about the user experience in general. There were as soon as it was released, as soon as people had the watch and were trying to check in with the watch. So you know, you can have the QR code, right? Which we all said was going to be the 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 killer yeah. app. The killer app. So basically, Qantas, the problem, they realized that if you if you try to put basically your wrist along with the watch under the reader, it doesn't fit. So you cannot basically, <laughs> you cannot actually oh check in God. because the reader is too low, so it doesn't fit. So you have to remove your watch, put your watch under it. You know, because I, I guess the reader was made for phones. And when you have a phone, it's very thin, so you Fair just enough. pass it under. and then, But of course, if you have your hand and wrist, if you're a human being, then, well, it doesn't work. Fair <laughs> <That> <laughs> Shows that shows simply that it's more complicated than just releasing a, an app. Yeah, think, think about this stuff. That's um, pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Uh, TechCrunch uh, wrote an article about a start, not yet another startup called I don't know how to say D U F L. Duffel. Dolph, Duffel, Duffel. Duffel. Oh, thank you. I was trying to make out how is it. So big to make it very simple. Uh, the the idea is, and I'm going to ask you if you like it or not. The idea is that you. You download the app, you sign up for the service, uh, Duffel sends you a suitcase, uh, you can actually put the, your stock clothes, the kind of clothes you always travel with. Then Duffel will take it back, store it, I mean, they will make it pictures, everything, so they will have like a whole you know, log of what you have in there. And basically every time you fly, you say, oh, I need to get, I don't know, well, I'm in Luxembourg and I'm traveling from Frankfurt in two days, I need to be in Frankfurt. Uh, the police duffel send my suitcase in, in, in Frankfurt. And so you don't have, you have your suitcase with your, I guess, your stock type of, of clothes waiting for you because they ship it. They didn't put it in your plane with you. What do you think about this? When I first heard about it, I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> but the more I thought about it, uh, I can see the use case. So, so yeah, they, they send a bag to your house. And you fill it up with the stuff that you travel with most. They take it away. They repack it in the most efficient way possible after doing the inventory, like you say. And then you say, okay, I'm going to go to Hong Kong. And they FedEx it to you. Literally FedEx it to you. Yeah, they use FedEx. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I was like, and the and the pricing model is 10 bucks a month. And then each trip costs $100 flat yeah. fee. Yeah. And I thought... That's expensive. That's ridiculous. What a silly thing. And then I thought, wait a minute. If I'm doing four flights on that trip and I'm being charged $35 to $50 a bag, which I could be on many of these airlines, that's paid for itself already. You're right. But would I use it? Hell no. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think so either. And I mean, what, the one problem I see that I'm sure I'm not sure they have scale. I mean, these are not that many people, you know, 
use, you know, travel that much, they would use that. And also, so they offer, they say that you can switch clothes at any time, so you can send new ones, different ones, etc. But it becomes really difficult to manage. Uh, does that mean that you have to buy your stock clothes, again, to use that term, like I said, do I need to buy an extra two pairs of two shirts, white shirts, plain shirts, to put them that in that thing over there in their storage and to be sent to me? I, I don't, I, they clean they clean everything and everything, and, you know, it, it looks like a nice ID. I'm not sure in real life it actually yeah. works out. I mean, Currently, by the way, it's only U.S., so maybe, you know, when you do these type of trips in the U.S. and you, you know you'll be surcharged for, for, for uh, luggage, Maybe it makes sense, economical sense. I still don't see people changing their habit for it, but maybe it will work. Well, I mean, it's uh, the uh, <laughs> the comments I'm on sure. the TechCrunch article are hilarious. My <laughs> my favorite one is this one, <laughs> which I took the time to write down and put in my own show notes. What a great idea! I have an idea too. Brusher. When you go to bed, you grab your phone. Push the brusher button, and within 10 minutes, someone will come to your house and brush your teeth for only $5. (laughs) (laughs) Which which is a much harsher way of saying what Paul and I just said. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, the on-demand economy, right? It's like, uh, and I mean, to a certain point, in some use cases, it actually works. I mean, we both like Uber, I mean, like, at least we use it, and... So, but here, I mean, where's the limit? Maybe, maybe in fifty years, people will do that and ship their clothes. I, I don't know. You know what? I'd rather actually not ship my clothes, but say, okay, you know, I have very few ones that I always travel with, and just buy, you know, like stuff. You know, having yeah, my I, I, when I arrive on the ground. I don't know. I mean, I travel here for three weeks, and uh, I don't have that many stuff, that much stuff with me. No. That's, I mean, I will survive. I don't think I would FedEx stuff to myself. Anyway. If you travel business class, though, uh, I mean, if you're lucky enough to travel business class, there's a new concept that you found out, Alex. I like this. So some of the biggest interior aircraft interior manufacturers have been working on this concept for three years, which is essentially a dovetail business class seat. Now, when you look at the pictures, there's nothing particularly revolutionary about the way it looks. For those of you that have seen the coffin uh, which it is pejoratively referred to, which is the wishbone or herringbone format of, of your head against the wall of the airplane, your feet sticking out into the aisle angled. Yeah. It's I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. I quite like it. Several airlines, it was first introduced by Virgin Atlantic and several airlines have either licensed it or copied it as a result. But what's so unique about this particular arrangement is how light and how cheap it is relative to your standard business class seat and also that it's very very quick to install which airlines will feel will find obviously very appealing and very very easy to maintain because of its kind of modular design so when you look at the pictures you're like i don't get it what's so special about this but from an airline perspective the cost of entry is much much lower without mm-hmm. taking away from the kind of creature comforts that we're all used to like you know, in-seat power, lie flat, um, you know, 18 and a half inch screen, USB ports and all that stuff, which is great which, because I think it means that we'll see a lot more airlines upgrading their business class product beforehand and those that don't have any business class product introducing it. The one thing, and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on this, Paul, that did, did strike me is how would I feel about this is Instead of having your head against the the wall and your feet pointing out like the current herringbone 
formation. In this instance, your feet are up against the wall and your head would be up against the aisle. Now you're completely enclosed and there's privacy screens, but it seems like it would make it much harder to look out the window because your head is exactly. you're far exactly. much physically further away from the window. What do exactly. you have you seen the pictures? Is there, yeah, I've seen. I've seen. I, I again, it, it's not like like you said. It's not something totally. You know, it's not one of these designs or patterns that we see it never actually come to fruition because it's just completely out there. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a question of, of course, I would prefer to see through the window. But at the end of the day, it's like it's like in some airlines now, I think United has in, uh, in business class when you're facing the opposite way of travel. Uh, which I find very, I've never... BA used to have that in their business class too. Uh, It's, you know, they have to find ways to come modules to find as many potential possibilities Mm. of, you know, uh, so you get used to it. It seems like it would be a much more, this new version would be a much more private feeling because you're you're just looking out into light, which is lovely. I mean, if you wanted to look at actual stuff you would need to get closer to the window and look down but you would have it it feels like you would have yeah but most of the flight in terms of long haul you don't look out the window right i mean i do you do because we're special so i could i can definitely see the appeal instead of looking out into the aisle you're looking out into just sort of a much more private space so i hope someone buys this i'm sure they will and installs it because it looks like a very interesting uh evolutionary step the, the one thing, the only thing that I would say about this window thing is the one thing that sometimes is a bit, I've, I've, flew, I've flown a few times in Erringbone in business class, and the one thing that I still find a little bit not very nice is in terms of experience is that since you have the window basically behind you, sometimes you cannot really see well the screen in front of you and you have to f- pull the blinds down because otherwise uh, it's too that's much a good you know, point. glare. That is a very so good I, point. So maybe there's stuff like that. Like uh, like what you just said about just looking, having just a window as the only thing you say uh, and not seeing basically other passengers going around and, you know, staff mm-hmm. and everything. Maybe it's part of why they did that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's nice. It's a nice idea. And it looks it looks solid. So I hope it comes to fruition. Yeah. I'll, I'll come. I haven't had time. I haven't found. I have, don't have the link yet, uh, for this time. But next time, I'll, I'll promise you I'll show you a seat that Philippine Airlines wanted to put in business class, stacked one upon each other. You'll see. You'll, oh, you'll my cr- goodness. Crazy, so I pr- prefer having this kind of watching out of the window <laughs> than anything else. <laughs> Going back to airports, uh, in the airports, um, Dusseldorf, which I will sadly not use. I thought I would be using to go to Hong Kong in a few days. We actually will meet in Hong Kong as well in a few days. Uh, I'm going through Frankfurt. So, But Dusseldorf has introduced uh, a robot, a valet robot for your car. So basically you arrive with your car. Uh, you, the, the robot takes the, measure, the measurement of your car and basically puts it in storage for you when you're not there. And when you come back, basically finds the car back for you. So it's a very efficient way of, wow. of, of, of doing things. And also it allows you not to like drive through the entire parking and you know having to walk to the elevators and go apparently where the robot is. And when I say robot, do not think about transformers, right? When <laughs> about some human <laughs> humanoid that like, talks to you. But I, I mean, I don't know how expensive it is, and I know it's it's actually something that's working. It's not just an idea. It's um, and it's not the first time that you had stuck cars, right? You have parked these parking with elevators where the car is actually in the elevator, and but it's I think it's 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 a fun. I would love to put my car there and see how it works. Dean told us, you remember last episode that when you don't know where you park your car, his new Porsche 
app and smartwatch, um, Apple Watch app, yeah, which we'll allow tell you to tell you where the car is. is. So cool. This time you don't even have to worry about it because you come back and you give you the uh, you give the number or something. I guess maybe it's even on a, on, a, on an app, and basically your car is being delivered in front of the parking. It's pretty cool. So good. So <laughs> I like I like it. I liked it. Uh, back to the skies. Uh, Four Seasons. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, you know, airlines going into the hotel industry, like to expand the user, the passenger experience. This is the opposite. Four Seasons is actually doing a plane. So they are refurbishing uh, 757 uh, 200, uh, the, the, the Boeing into something really fancy. I mean, I have to, we'll have to follow the link to see the pictures and to see how luxurious it is. It's probably not as luxurious as a private 747-8 that Alex mentioned earlier, but why do you think about Four Seasons going into basically? I, I it's not a airline, right? It's a single plane. It's an experience. You can go as a customer. What do you think about it? Do you think it's a marketing thing, or do you think they're actually catering for customers that want to sleep in the skies or something? I have no idea what they were <laughs> thinking. I mean, it, the f physical product and the food, and it's it's managed. It's wet leased by Tag Aviation, who are special yes, specialist right. in in luxury charters but i don't get it like if they're moving into the holiday space that makes sense because there are it's a very high margin business if you can get it right especially the luxury thing and the, what they're doing is selling round the world itineraries for something crazy like a hundred and twenty thousand dollars to do a six or 23 day um itinerary around the world on this on this airplane and there's definitely a market for that and these guys are are so good at, at luxury that it, that if anybody can do it it's them but that's a product that doesn't make that doesn't make a business game <laughs> no no you're right so i'll be fascinated to see i'd be fascinated to see if there's a market for somebody that has one hundred and thirty two thousand dollars to drop on a three-week vacation and isn't going to go private yeah, exactly. What, what wouldn't you charter a plane, or at least I mean, there are, are, are um, uh, companies that allow you to coach, co-share, you know, charter planes and stuff. So again, maybe you're appealed by the product because the product looks amazing. And like you said, Four Seasons. If there's anyone being able to do uh, luxury, Four Seasons is probably one of the top three. So they will. Th the product looks amazing, and I wish I could be a, like a you know they would offer me a ticket just, just for me to be able to see that, even just on the ground to actually look at that plane. But they, they say they will be. Um, the, the, the staff will be hotel trained. They'll have an executive chef. There will be a journey manager, which is basically a concierge. Uh, they'll have, of course, the pilots, engineers, and everything. So it's, I don't know. I mean, we'll follow up. I don't know if, I mean, I hopefully we'll follow up because hopefully we'll see, you know, usually when these things don't work, they kind of die out very quietly. Nobody talks about it, but uh, it would be, so if anyone... We listens to us, and he's from Four Seasons, and wants to invite. <laughs> yeah, we will. Two nice guys, just for. We'll find some time to write about it. We'd be okay to go to the Maldives, yeah. <laughs> not very far, right? And so, please just let us know. You have our email and everything. We'll be. We're, we we know how to behave in a place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul does anyway. Uh, London. So this morning, so we're Monday today. Uh, probably I say that because uh, the show will probably not be released today on Monday. So probably during the week. Sorry, guys. Uh, I've, I was, I took a flight from London to, uh, Luxembourg and I was flying B. Hey, and when I was, yesterday, last night, I went to TripIt and TripIt shows me Terminal 1. And I'm like, what? Terminal 1? There's no way. I mean, you know, 
BA flies out for Terminal 5 and sometimes for Terminal 3. In Terminal 1, when I say what is because Terminal 1 is closing down in, on June 29th. Uh, it's been on service for like a very long time. Most of the airlines have moved away. Most of them were actually Star Alliance, so they've moved Terminal 2, which is, since I fly a lot of Star Alliance, uh, I fly a lot from Terminal 2. And so this morning, I was in Terminal 1, and my goodness, Alex, you would have loved it. The thing is empty. Oh. The terminal is empty. There's, I think, less than 10 flights, uh, 10 routes, sorry, that are leaving from Terminal 1, all from BA. All the other airlines are, are gone. So only bits of the actual terminal are still in use. You can still do. Uh, I'll show you some pictures, Alex. They, they've blocked out parts of it. So it's a very efficient airport because suddenly, you know, when you have like almost no one in it, you go through security and everything like, like in a breeze. But sounds like paradise. Yeah, yeah. And I always like, to be honest, I always liked Terminal 1 because for me, it was always efficient. I usually travel during the week, so don't take my word for it because during the weekend, I heard it wasn't always great. But it's it's, it's a good memory. And uh, there's a small campaign by London um, uh, Heathrow on Twitter. It says if you have memories about Terminal 1, you can... Uh, tweet and or put pictures and uh, put a hashtag on it, which is uh, T1 lights off. Uh, so if anyone wants to participate, it's not like a huge campaign, you know, but it's it's still an era that passes. Closing a terminal down and then demolishing it, it's no. I mean, did you is do you have memories in that? Terminal? I do. I mean, 47 years it's been in service. That's an unbelievable amount of time. It's a strange terminal. It's always been kind of a strange terminal. Yes, it has this kind of retro space age feel to it. And there's like, <laughs> a good way to put it's it. sort of labyrinthine and you, you wander down passenger passages. And I think Terminal 1 was where I managed to somehow get, go through immigration, get out to my gate, take a wrong turn, like looking for a vending machine or a bathroom or something and end up back landside <laughs> somehow, you know, it was, it's one of those terminals because it's kind of been like bolted on this bit here and removed that bit over the 47 years it's been in existence. But Man, Heathrow is going through such a... It's not even a facelift. It's a total overhaul. Yeah, so actually, if you look from the skies, if you look... Uh, the, 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 the layout of Heathrow was a bit, like you said, bizarre. I mean, let's not even talk about Terminal 4, which is kind of out there. <laughs> but the, the three terminals, 1, 2, and 3, and the 2 was demolished some time ago, there's a new 3, were a bit of a, a X layout. And on the other side, the Terminal 5, which is the big terminal from BA, is very strict. It's a it's a cube. Mm. It's a nice cube. It's not a US cube. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, and they're like, so. It, but if you look at Terminal 2, so just go on Google Maps, if you look at Terminal 2, you'll see that what they actually are, are doing now is they are replicating the exact same layout that you have on the uh, the west side, which is obviously BA, so Terminal 5, on the east side, which will be at some point, because that's a plan, that they're going to demolish Terminal 1, which is closing down, build over it the extension of Terminal 2. So Terminal 2 will be exactly like uh, Terminal 5, so this uh, uh, rectangle. And over time, they will, if they have provided they have enough money, also destroy Terminal 3, and expand again Terminal 2 with a, an additional uh, cube, a uh, rectangle. So basically, just look at on Google Maps at how does the west part of the, uh, the, 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 the airport look like with Terminal 5. There's three rectangles, three buildings. This will be most basically mirrored on the east side. And by the way, Terminal 5 should be named Terminal West, and Terminal 2 expanded should be named Terminal East. And that will be it. 
I am excited about this. <laughs> yeah, because the only getting around the only Heathrow problem is, is like, a bit of a pain. will we be alive when it's well? Dark? True, true. I, I've heard pretty <laughs> short timelines for even Terminal Three being demolished, so I think we'll see it. I think we'll benefit yeah. from it. No, we will. And uh, I mean, if you if you travel through Heathrow, anyone just take a look when you are in Terminal, uh, when you sorry when you take off and you land, you can see. Uh, still see Terminal 1, it's still active, if you're still lucky or unlucky, I still call it lucky to fly, you know, like I was from Luxembourg, I think it's Hanover, I mean, there are a few, of course, medium routes, uh, European routes from there, I mean, just take pictures and post them and hashtag T1 lights off if you have any memories, but I think it's an area that passes in itself, you know, yeah, said, maybe you're, a... I'm too much of a geek, but I'm, you know, it's a bit of... No, it's important, I think it's important. So, uh, going to the Middle East. Yeah, again, from, from the old to, to the very new. <laughs> Emirates, uh, they must have felt a little bit of a pinch to react like this, but Emirates has announced that they are going to introduce a apartment-style first-class suite that is, quote-unquote, commercially viable, which is a strange thing to say. So apartment style, yes. Apartment style is what? The residence. So, yeah, Etihad have the residence, <laughs> which is a apartment i mean it's ridiculous it also costs twenty thousand us dollars one way between abu dhabi and london that's a seven hour flight so do the math on the cost per hour there uh it's also been sold out for a long long time what emirates are doing apparently is luxury high-end but not as crazy as that and they've compared it and i really like this comparison they've said it will feel like a private uh, cabin on a train on a luxury train mm. which is a, a really nice and i i've oh, had the, the i've been fortunate enough to to do something like that on a train on an old steam train in south africa and it is very self-contained and private even though you are still on a train cabin and they emirates say they're going to have this in the next kind of two to three months they'll have a mock-up and a prototype done and hopefully by the end of the year they'll have it for sale wow it's it's interesting the train company also did that it did a, a train old train route i don't think it exists anymore 2008 9 between kanazawa and ueno so basically between uh, a little bit east of tokyo to tokyo was a seven eight nine hour ride and i had i upgraded myself in a way to a private cabin it's not as expensive upgrading yourself in a first class in a, in a, in a plane or not not even a residence obviously and I like the idea, obviously. Do you think, because, you know, do you think it will be like, you know, like Singapore has now has done the Singapore, there's the yeah, first class, I think so. there's a suite. I think it will be very above. similar. But what they're saying is that it should be very similar to the, to the current pricing for their first class product, which okay. is very different oh. from the Singapore and from the Etihad product offering so a very sensible move if they can i mean i'm sure they can make the economics work their emirates but i think uh, it could be really interesting to see and i guarantee our friends over at design air will be some of the first to experience this so johnny (laughs) hook us up man yeah we're very jealous but it's it 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 is it it is smart it is smart because it's smart because i think emirates out of the three uh are you know we we mentioned last week uh, with the Copenhagen, Dubai route mm. that will not have a first class. I think they will probably offer that in some selected routes that they know have high heel yield, so that's, that's people will take it. Uh, it will be interesting. It's not, 
the way they put it out, I, I, I mean, listening to what you just said, is not as, you know, out there as, you know, no. the residence. The residence was really a marketing scene, like we have the best product in disguise ever. No, exactly. Right? They're not saying this is luxury redefined and all that. They're just saying it's going to be awesome, but you'll actually be able to afford it. Yeah. Plus, uh, you know, let's not forget that Emirates is far, far, far more a380s than they have uh than other uh, um that etihad has so etihad is easy you put a residence in three in three planes and there you go yeah <laughs> if emirates had to like retrofit all there to to be honest what i would leave because i'll fly emirates in, in a few days uh and, and again later this month it would be interesting to see if they at some point decide to change the design of the product because now their design looks dated is a bit harsh but when you see what other, uh, not only the other Middle Eastern airlines, what they have done in the front of the cabin, they went for something that is slightly more obscure. Uh, maybe Emirates should think about how do we reimagine it. I'm sure they already mm. are p planning it, but it's... Um, yeah, I one think last so. question. One last question for you there. Why do you think that this type of products are reserved to the A380? Wouldn't it be possible to have such things in a 777? It feels purely like a space ish thing i mean you have yeah. just that much more available real estate to, to give over with, yeah. to projects like this so i think honestly the a380 is really the only viable uh aircraft for this type of project okay well or, or you just give it to, to four seasons right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh yeah Last story of the week, Ifan. So we talked what about this before we even had a podcast. And Correct. Airbus had created this rather extraordinary looking electric airplane that uses its own, uh, called the Ifan light aircraft. And it was unveiled formally about a year ago. It's a two-seater. So we're not even talking a commercial here. It's purely a test bed. But it's a two-seater, low-wing, high-tail airplane. That's mm -hmm. taking basically what we've all learned from the last couple of decades of hybrid cars and combining a electric engine with a, in this instance, kerosene, what they call range extender to keep the battery topped up. But okay. what they've announced that is that they're actually going to put this thing into production and oh. they're wow. building a final assembly line in, in Poe in the south of France. And they've actually talked about by the 2050s, having a 90-seat, what they call e-thrust concept aircraft. So basically an electric airplane. And this is obviously the first of many baby steps towards something like that. Mm -hmm. But the benefits being obviously uh, lower, much slower fuel consumption. And they're nearly, they sound very odd, but they're not to the same roar of a, of a jet engine. They're a, kind of a high-pitched whine almost. So this is really cool, and kudos to Airbus for pushing in this direction. I'm very interested to see one of these fly and, and how it's going to happen. But it's actually done by a, an Airbus subsidiary called Voltaire. But a nice, really cool, cool project. Will you get one? I, if they want to give me one, I'll take it. Yeah, it's flown. I mean, these things have flown. It's it's this isn't pie in the sky. Literally, it's no, it, I know it, they've yeah. flown. So it's just a, actually flown. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so it's just I don't know. I don't know how to fly. So I mean, I've done lessons, but I don't know how to fly. So I will just crash the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather. I think I, I I'll, I'll stick with a Tesla. By the way, I don't have a Tesla. I wish, right? That'd be kind of fun. <laughs> this is like the Tesla of the skies. It's probably the simplest. Exactly. I could have said that yeah, and saved exactly. about thirty seconds. 
Yeah, I thought the design. I mean, the design looks. How do you say that? It's not bad, but it's not Tesla either. It's uh, definitely not Tesla. All right, it's still uh, Tesla has this kind of a racing thing going on. You know, that's kind of a bit both racy and at the same time, you know, classy. Some people say tacky for some bits. I don't know. I don't it, think uh, they're tacky. I think they're cool. Yeah, I think they're pretty cool as well. But it's not here. The the e fan is not that. But uh, it's not the plan either, right? By no. The way. It's, no, it's, exactly. I've seen I've seen one uh, flying actually in Farnsboro. Ah, so, uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, last year, so that was yeah, that was quite something. At first, it was you know because obviously you have like you know huge aircrafts flying, and that thing started flying it was very far because I was even you know on the side of the runway, and I was like, what is this? Right? Why is that flying? I mean, I want to see you know your seven eight seven. I want to see the big stuff, and I want to see that small thing. Right. <laughs> and then a friend of mine who invited me there started started explaining what it was. I was like, oh, I see. Okay, that's interesting. Actually, <laughs> it's not. That's cool that like, you got to see it. That's well. Yeah, for a few minutes. I think I have pictures or something. I'll, I'll put them out. Uh, so, as we said, no question of the week, no topic of the week. Uh, we'll do that in a more... Uh, you see, we already done like an hour and a half just uh, just of the news. Well, we want to have the episodes a bit more tight, so we'll go directly to uh, Lucy. Who's Lucy? Lucy, London City Airport. And I, <laughs> you know what? I, I am going to say this is my favorite airport in London for so many reasons, especially if you are... A light traveler like both Paul and I are. London City Airport yeah, is the only sure. airport that is actually in London. The others right. are way outside of London, as as you may have discovered to your horror when you've tried to get into town from Heathrow or Gatwick or Stansted or Luton or any of the others that claim to be anywhere near London. London City Airport is right in the Docklands, which is the heart of the financial district of London. It is on a not a peninsula. It's based on a sort of on an old uh, shipping dockyard inlet, and the runway is only four thousand nine hundred feet long, which is not a long runway at all. So it is almost exclusively the domain of uh, not de- not just domestic but European traffic. So the yeah, mostly it's mostly if uh, you know short yeah. medium haul. So the top five destinations are Amsterdam, Zurich, Edinburgh, Frankfurt, and Geneva. You'll also notice that those are major financial capitals as well. So this is taking bankers from one banking city to another banking city. A city to, yeah, exactly. So the reasons I like this city are it is this. I love the city, of course, but the the airport airport is (laughs) it is extremely efficient. Uh, It's small and it is designed to accommodate those with hand luggage only. Who, know, who travel frequently, know exactly what they're doing, are in yeah, and it's out. it's really business travelers. I mean, although business travelers, now the definition has been extended to a lot of people, but it's really people that, you know, go even sometimes just for the day, back and forth, just carry on, nothing fancy, yep. it's just go directly to the gate. It's very fast. Yeah, you, it's one of you the fastest. S- like, I like I did T1 this morning, only that T1 was empty. This, this one right. is actually a real airport. Very busy airport, <laughs> which they're expanding to to uh, accommodate but another reason i love this airport is that no matter which direction you're taking off or landing you always get a great ride with a great view and 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 here's why the so you have the short runway um but you're also surrounded by buildings which not only are solid and not fun to crash into but also uh come with very strict noise abatement regulations right 
So it sounds totally impractical to put an airport there, but engin the engineers that designed it came up with a really good solution. And that solution was make the landing approach as steep as possible to minimize exactly. the noise. Yes. Yes. So on an average airport, the, the approach angle, I mean, the, the angle of the airplane, the glide, the glide slope to the ground is around two to three degrees. When London City first opened, it was a stomach-dropping seven and a half seven degrees, and a half, yeah. which was unheard of. <laughs> yeah, it's not anymore, sadly. No, yeah. so you have to know what you're doing. Only certain types of airplanes are, are certified to go in there, and, Allowed, and yeah. pilots have to go through a special course to learn how to shoot this particular approach. So. Often, if you're coming from Western Europe, you fly parallel to the airport and do a U-turn basically over Big Ben and come in and land. So you get the most spectacular view of the city, at which point the, the pilot gets the airplane in the dirtiest configuration possible, i.e. full flaps, gear down, and they're on this crazy glide slope. And then you have to make sure that you don't run out of runway at the end of this very short runway because there's just water at the end of it <laughs> and then you taxi back along the runway which you landed on so you turn around at the end of the runway taxi on and then you walk across the apron uh to the terminal it's a great for the for the aviation enthusiast it is a dream come true it is actually they the, so you mentioned they were expanding the terminal they're expanding the terminal. more people Will they or are they expanding the runway? They are trying to. They've been met with fierce resistance from local. Yeah. From local, from the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. because of noise and, and all these noise. other things. So whether or not. Uh, oh, oh. Uh, so here's the drama. I just remembered it. The plan to expand the terminal and the airport and the runway was given the go ahead in February 2015. Yes, we mentioned it. I we think. did. We covered it. I was very excited about it. But then in March. Boris Johnson, the mayor of London, overturned the approval, and oh, that's the that's okay. where we are today. So expect a sizable fight there. Yeah, it's disappointing. Huge. I just remember that it's hugely disappointing that that happened. Yeah, but again, I mean, we know that noise is one of the biggest fights in all airports, yeah. by the way. But here, of course, when you talk about city airports, not only London City but any type of city airports, you ha you end up having these issues. And uh, so, well, well. It's still an amazing, even in its current configuration, not having to change. Uh, it's still it's an amazing airport. It's extremely efficient. I, I know I say, usually, I say a lot efficient when we're talking about airports because for the moment we mostly covered mostly covered air, airports we like. But this is one of the probably you're right the most efficient airports you can ever be in. Also, and I would say that, um, and I know I, it's, I will sound a little bit uh, I don't know how to say it maybe elitist or something. It's not only because the airport is well designed, it's also because the type of people that travel there are basically almost everyone is a business traveler. So security, everything goes like a breeze yeah. because everyone is basically wants to go as fast as possible. They're very experienced. They, they're prepped yes. by the time they get security. So don't. So I apologize, apologies for those who don't travel as much. I was not saying that, you know, like you, you know that, that scene from uh, Up in the Air with George Clooney when he's arrives, he arrives at security and chooses which line he will take depending on what kind of people are in front of him. Oh, there's these old people. Oh, they're like the parents with, their, with a kid. <laughs> yeah. This is, I'm, no, I'm not like that. You are not either. But it's true that you can still feel a difference. when you, It seems like you're in a fast track in the entire airport, basically. And that's a very appreciated. Yeah, you can breeze through in no time. And actually, BA operate a business class only A318 route, route, yeah. to New York to via, New York, via yeah. Shannon. 
they're not they're not they're they're not i think because i've never taken it but i don't think they're the the current uh business product that is offered by ba no. if you fly ba to new york via uh, via heathrow you'll have a better and again you know it's only a six hours flight but you have the current um product for for business class whereas in that i think in that it's the oldest it's not completely life flat i mean still it's a great deal yeah you can it, fly from the city to new york yeah it's like many of the other business class i don't think there's i a uh, business class only airlines i don't think there's permanent ife or anything like that but i do think that there's uh internet on the oh, yeah wow. okay i might have made, just made that up but if anyone's flown on it it's actually not too expensive all things considered it's worth uh worth exploring yeah, worth exploring. So, for those who uh, like efficient airports, if you ever travel, even coming coming to to London, you actually uh, you should look at uh, Lucy because it's really uh, very efficient. Even if you're a tourist, honestly, you're very quickly to the city from uh, from that airport. So it's uh, one that you should look look at. No low cost, sadly, but good airline still. Yeah, I think I said no low cost, but I'm not even sure. Actually, maybe there might be. No, I don't think there are. I think it's it's uh, the bigger it's BA, Lufthansa, CityJet, Flybe, Swissair, Alitalia, and then a couple yeah, of so regional the, carriers. Yeah. And on this, uh, I mean, it's uh, an airport that uh, I don't know much more than that because it's so you know every time I go there, I basically spend what twenty. Yeah, exactly. You can <laughs> you can get there with just minutes to spare before your flights leaves because you know you're going to get through. So we cannot say it's a good airport for layovers because you're probably not there because that's the point. You're not going to stay there. You're going to go breeze through and just go to your destination. So sadly, it's not a good airport for layovers, but you still have some amenities. Don't think it's just uh, a a cube and a hangar. It's actually something a bit more, but yeah, it's not an airport for layovers, but one of the best in terms of business travel or fast travel. On this, Alex, uh, well, I'll see you in a couple of days actually in the other side of the planet uh we'll see each other in hong kong we don't think we'll be uh recording an episode there because we're both very busy uh so probably next week uh we'll see how it goes uh but until then we uh we thank you the audience for listening and let us know what you think about that format not doing just basically focusing on the news and also don't forget to send in questions and topics of the week that you want us to cover uh, apologies if you haven't, we haven't had a chance to get to it yet, but if you have anything that you want us to talk about or explore in depth, please get in touch either on Twitter or Facebook or uh, on email at hello at layovers.to. Exactly. And on this, guys, happy flying. Safe travels. On behalf of Layovers and the entire crew, we'd like to thank you for joining us on this podcast, and we're looking forward to seeing you on board again next week. Flight attendants, please prepare for landing.